So there's a story of a student and of a teacher. They're having a discussion, and the student is talking to the teacher, and uh, the student has been going to Sunday school and learning some pretty cool stories. And so the student is making the teacher aware of this story that she heard from the Bible, and it was a story of Jonah. And she was explaining the story of Jonah and the great fish. And so the teacher comes back and says, well, the way I heard it, it was Jonah and the great whale. And the little girl, having been in Sunday school and gotten a little bit of uh, Hebrew language in there, said, well, in the Hebrew language, it's, it's, it's fish, we can't really be sure. And so the, the teacher is like, look, I've heard this all my life. I'm telling you, it's a great whale. And back and forth they went, great fish, great whale, great fish, great whale. The student finally says, look, I, I can't just, I can't prove it to you, but here's what I'll do. I'll know when I get to heaven, I'll ask him what indeed it was. And so the teacher says, well, what if he's not in heaven? And the student says, well, you can ask him. (laughs) So one thing that they could agree on was that it was great, whether it was a fish or whether it was a whale. You know, we all want to be great in life. Nobody sets out to be mediocre in life. We, we, We wouldn't do that. We want to be great. In fact, our society encouraged greatness. Authors will tell us that we can have our greatest life even now. We want the greatest bodies. We want the greatest marriages and the greatest jobs that will pay us the greatest amount of money. And all along, what are we doing? We are spearheading our own greatness. It even goes down to the cereal that you eat. As one famous tiger said about his flakes, they're great. Greatness is where it's at. If I can be great, then perhaps people will think differently of me. Perhaps I'll make more money. I'll feel good. But greatness, we find, is skewed in our world today. We we, we put people on pedestals for being great at different things. Take, for instance, our sports figures. If any of you watch baseball, you'll know that if a baseball player can hit 300 or better, they're considered great. We applaud them for being great, but even in their greatness, they are failures. 70% of the time, they don't even hit the ball. And that's our barometer for greatness. You may say, well, you try hitting a 100-mile fastball and see how it works out. I get that. But perhaps greatness is relative. We set out to be great in something, and yet we know we're going to fail time and time again. And yet, we want to be great in what we do. But I wonder, how many of us want to be great in something that is not self-serving or not self-centered? I wonder if we've ever thought as Christians, as believers, man, I want to have a great relationship with God. I want to be a great follower of Christ. I want to be, I want to give great. I want to serve great. I wonder how many of us have ever thought, I want to be a great prayer warrior. Have you ever thought, I want want to be great at this thing called prayer. You know, much like baseball players failing more often than they succeed. Don't you feel sometimes like your prayer life is the same way? This communication with God that we have, it's something that is special. That we can feel great about in one moment and then really frustrated about in the next. You know, as I was preparing for this and realizing we're going to be talking about this thing called prayer. I thought, you know what? I just want to, I want to know in my own mind, what do I think 
about prayer. And so I just did a, a, a very quick brainstorming exercise, 30 seconds. I wrote down as many things as I could think of. Prayer is, and this is what I came up with. And, and, and you can see it's going to be all over the board. Prayer is powerful. It is humbling, costly, exhaustive, introspective, amazing, awe-inspiring. Prayer is hard. It's work, important, it's selfish, it's selfless, it's communication, it's sharing of your heart, passionate, transparent, confusing, frustrating, invaluable, it's commanded, mysterious, neglected, respected, honored, universal, special, unique, personal, corporate, expressive. And then I just wrote down one word at the end, I wrote tears. As you can see, I'm all over the, all over the place with this thing called prayer. As you can see, I cannot tell you that my prayer life is great. I will admit that to you right now. My prayer life is not great. And I believe many of you will join me in that admission. Because here's what I find is way too often my prayer is centered around the wrong things. And that is me. Far too often I feel like my prayer falls short of being what it should be. And if I'm being honest with you this morning. Far too often, prayer becomes a last resort instead of being our greatest ally or our greatest weapon. But I want to have a great prayer life. And I believe you do as well. I want my prayers to be great. Why? Because we serve a great God. Now don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that our prayers always have to be this drawn out and wordy and loud and highly emotional each and every time. But I will say this. Throughout Scripture, we get examples of prayer. And we see patterns. In fact, when Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray, there are some common themes that we can glean. And today we're going to see a great prayer that I hope will cause us to reflect and hopefully to apply. We finally made it out of the book of Ezra. We're going to be going into the book of Nehemiah. We're leaving Ezra behind. But here's what you, maybe you know or you don't know. Is that Ezra and Nehemiah, it was circulated together at one point. And so they were together almost as, as, as one work. One kind of pigtails off the other. Ezra, you know, uh, and his, uh, his buddies, Rubbable, they brought back a remnant out of captivity. They came back and they, 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 uh, they built the temple. And, of course, they tried to rebuild the walls and they got stopped. But what happened by the end of the book is they rededicated their life to God. And so now we come to Nehemiah. We've been going through this book. Uh, God is greater, right? He is greater than all things. And it's through Ezra and Nehemiah. And this... This thing we call the Bible, this work, isn't it a captivating book? I mean, the collection of authors, and, 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 and it's captivating. And it has all the makings that, that uh, maybe an interesting book or an interesting movie would have. It has a, a great story. And with any story, there usually is a problem that occurs in the story. And what happens is the meat of that story is how the characters deal with the, the, the issue. And the problem, and so we get in, 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 entrenched in it, and we follow it. We want to know how, it, how, how, how the end comes out and how the, the characters are going to deal with it. Well, this piece of history that we're going to be looking at today in Nehemiah, chapters 1 and chapter 2, is no different. We are going to be introduced to a name uh, that we've just heard. He's the author. Nehemiah is the guy that we're going to be introduced to. And we know nothing about this guy other than this. We learned something about him at the end of the chapter. And that is that he was the cupbearer to the king. That meant that if the king was going to get some food, he was going to taste it or sip the, the drink. And if he, if he lived, then and great. If, if he died, then the king wasn't going to eat that meal that day. Interestingly enough, a fact about Nehemiah is you will never hear about him anywhere else in the Bible. But this book is important. 
And it's vital to the history of this nation. So we are going to jump into chapter 1, verse 1. If you have your Bibles, you can use your phones. Just don't be updating the Raven score. Um, And uh, if not, and you can't trust yourself, then look up on the screen and we'll have it for you. We get started in in verse 1 of chapter 1. It says this. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year while I was in Susa, the capital. i got to be honest, it's not the greatest intro to a book that I've ever seen. Kind of boring, talking about Chislev, which who in the world even knows what that is? Well, it's a time frame. It's a month. And I want to put this time frame into perspective, and I'm going to ask you to remember it, because I'm going to quiz you on it later. I'm going to need you to remember that towards the end. This time frame would put this account in the month of November to December, in that time frame, okay? So if you're taking notes, write that down, um, and this will come uh, into uh, importance later on. In verses 2 and 3, we're introduced to a guy named Hananiah. He's uh, 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 described as a, a brother to Nehemiah. Look, we don't know if it's a blood brother. Uh, it could be a close friend. The, the, the word is the same. It could be translated both. Um, it, it, in my mind, really not very important other than this. We see Hananiah again in chapter 7 as somebody that Ezra trusts greatly, and he puts him into some leadership. And so Hananiah has some news for Nehemiah, and it's not good news. The people that went back with Zerubbabel and back with Ezra in Jerusalem, they're not doing so well. What does it say in the text in verse 3? It says they are in great distress and reproach. Distress meaning they were just in misery, as the Hebrew says it. It brings out this intensity of emotion. Reproach meaning the shame and disgrace. See, there were no walls. Why? Because they were broken. There were no gates because they were burned down. And of course, this is a big deal because how in the world... Would a city be able to defend itself with no walls and no gates? They were vulnerable, and it was a terrible thing. This vulnerability probably happened in the time of Ezra when the king granted him uh, the ability to do work, and then he all of a sudden stopped him abruptly. And so what Nehemiah sees right off here is he has a great problem. Look at verse 4. When I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. This is Ezra and his reaction. It's this instant raw reaction of Nehemiah to the news that was just brought to him. He's hit with this wave of emotion. And this wave of emotion shows us that he he, he deeply loves and cares for the people, for their well-being. But it's also, going to, so we're going to see that it sets the emotional barometer for his intense love and his care for Almighty God. But this indeed was a black eye for God's people. It was a shame. It was a travesty. And Nehemiah believed that it shouldn't continue. But what in the world was Nehemiah going to do about it? He's in the service of the king. He's just a man. What do you think he's going to do about it? Well, he just sits down and he weeps. Not just crying, weeping, and crying, and he mourned for days, and he mourned, mourning led to fasting, which we talked about in Ezra. And that fasting led to prayer. I wonder, have you ever been hit with that kind of emotion? Have you ever been hit with that kind of emotion that literally brings you to your knees? If you have, you obviously know what it feels like. That reaction, that that emotion that brings you to your knees, it can happen over a number of different things that happen in your life. It could be a loss of a loved one. It it could be a personal injury, uh, a devastating separation, a natural disaster. And I can tell you, when it happens, you will remember it for the rest of your life. I can remember the first time that ever happened to me. 
When I was literally brought to my knees, weeping before God, it happened at the impending birth of our oldest daughter, who was about to be born three months too early. And the doctor said, I don't think she's going to make it. Talk about sending you to your knees. Talk about taking you down. So I get what it means. I also get that life comes at us fast and furious and, and we're in a constant battle, but there is something that should also bring us to our knees in great emotion. Certain things that don't have just a direct effect on us, but something that is bigger than just ourselves. And that is, we should be greatly affected when the witness of God's kingdom is being attacked and the hindrancing of the advancement of the gospel of truth. When we see the attack on God and the attack on the advancement of truth, it should affect us. It should move us. Yet what I found is we have become so desensitized to things in our society today. We've been desensitized to poverty and destruction and violence and murder and many other things. That we are no longer in touch with those emotions that, by the way, they do run deep inside of each one of us. We suppress it. We push it down. But not Nehemiah. Not Nehemiah. He lets his emotions go and he gets hit with this raw, unedited emotion and he sits and he weeps and he prays, which sounds familiar, right? If you were with us for the Ezra, uh, part, of, part of Ezra book, we saw that Ezra had the same reaction when he heard and he, when he got the bad news. It wasn't just bad news. It was bad news of things that were contrary to God's will. It was, bringing, uh, it was defaming the name of God. Those kind of things should drive us to our knees. I wonder. When we pray, what are we praying about? What do your prayers consist of? Look, we're not going to talk about this morning the fact that prayer is important because I think that's obvious and I'm going to be preaching the choir. No, I think we need to talk about the content of our prayers. Despite our lack of complete understanding of this thing uh, called prayer, despite the mysteriousness of it, despite the fact that it frustrates us, it is a vital piece of the believer's life and one that we cannot and should not ignore. You know what we need more of in our midst, more of in our churches, more of in our country and around the world is that we need prayer warriors. We need more prayers. One that will go before Almighty God on behalf of others. And on behalf of what God desires in our lives. And by the way, we all need prayer. We all need prayer in our lives. We don't just need prayer. We need great prayer. We need our prayers to be great. And so I wonder, what makes a prayer great? Look in verse 5. He begins this prayer. Nehemiah is falling on his knees before God. And he's crying out, I beseech you, God. You're probably not going to use those words. If you do, I'm pretty impressed. I beseech you. He's begging God. Pleading with God. It's of the utmost importance. He's bringing it before the throne of grace. I wonder, have you ever begged God for something? You know, when you feel passionately about something, then that's what happens. Nehemiah is saying, God, I need this. I want this. Please, God. But notice he doesn't start off saying, God, this is what I need. No, he starts off not by requesting. He starts off by recognizing. And what he recognizes is that God is awesome. I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. Great prayer begins with praise and recognition. And notice as commentators have pointed out that the order of this prayer is significant. First praise, then petition. 
Not the other way around. Praise, then petition. Which is a constant theme throughout Scripture and even into the New Testament as Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. Hallowed be thy name. It's a recognition of who he is. It's an act of praise. And in fact, it's an act of worship. And this is first before anything else. He says, God, you are, you are awesome. You've heard this word get thrown around, right? This word means in the English language, extremely impressive or inspiring. I mean, when someone does something pretty cool, like maybe an extreme sport, maybe if you've ever seen a sleight of hand trick, or maybe the eclipse that, that happened just a, a month or so ago, or if you have the, the, the ability to see the northern lights, which I've seen, something that's out of the ordinary, you go, man, is that awesome? Because we're impressed by it, right? We appreciate it, we admire it, but the word here, awesome, in the Hebrew, literally means to be in awe of something. To be astonished, to have reverence, to have honor and respect for. It's so much more than going, dude, that was totally cool, it was totally awesome. It's more than that. You are in awe. And I will tell you that when we realize and think about who God is, it should leave us in a state of awe. Not just who God is, but what he has done for us. When we realize that, our jaw should literally drop to the floor. Because when we realize the depths of our depravity and the fact that as believers we were once lost in our sin... But now we are alive for it with him and, and will be forevermore. We should be in absolute awe of our God. And so when we come to God, when we want to bring our, 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 our petitions to him, we need to come to him and recognize him and praise him for who he is. But notice, it's interesting in this, in this verse. Notice he uses the word, not just awesome. What's the words that come before it? Great and awesome. He says, you are great and awesome. Notice, it's the same exact word that he used in verse 3 when he says that there was a, a, a great problem. Nehemiah is saying, you know what, there is a great problem. Okay, but he's going to go on to, to show us through his text that yes, there's a great problem, but God is greater. Notice he only uses a small verse to describe the issues that the, the nation is having. Yet he's going to continue throughout the span of this entire chapter, going on and on about how awesome God is. And in fact, he's going to bookend it in verse 10, describing how awesome and strong and great and powerful God is. In fact, throughout the book of Nehemiah, only one more time does Nehemiah use the word great to describe how bad things are. And six total times to describe how great our God is. He's almighty. And I wonder, have you ever come to God in prayer? Realizing, man, your problems are great. And they are. But have you ever realized, man, my problems are great. The issues around me are great. But then you quickly turn around and you realize that our God is bigger than that very thing. That's exactly what he was doing here. He's saying, man, God, this problem is great. It's so big that I can't even handle it on my own. And when he comes before the throne of grace, he must confess that. Wow, my problem is great. Our God is greater. And I can't do it on my own. Listen to Psalm 1832. It says, it is God who arms me with strength and keeps my way secure. See, it's only by his strength and his grace that we can not only get through things, but be overwhelmingly conquerors through them. That is because our God is great and he is awesome. And he reminds us in Jeremiah 32 when he says, is anything too hard for me? Yes, there are problems in your life and there are great problems problems in your life. They may seem insurmountable. They may be beating you up. But as great as your problems are, they are no match for Almighty God. That's what Nehemiah had in the forefront of his mind. 
when he prayed. And that's what we should have in our mind as we pray. So what makes a prayer great? It starts with praise and recognition. Look at verse 6. Let your ear now be attentive. And your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night. He didn't just throw up the prayer and go, okay, it's handled. Day and night, he's praying. He sees the importance of this prayer. He sees the importance of what he desires, and he knows it's what God desires as well. And so he is persistent in it. What makes a prayer great is persistence in it. Follow on to verse 6 through 7. Confessing the sins of Israel, which we have sinned against you, I and my father's house have sinned. You know, just like Ezra, he took part, Nehemiah took part in the, in the responsibility of the sin of the people. He could have pointed the finger, that would have been pretty easy to do. He didn't make excuses, he didn't blame ship, he simply admitted it and confessed it. Well, how did they go against God? Look at verse 7. We have acted very corruptly against you. We have not kept your commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances, which that uh, you commanded your servant Moses. Look, these are all legal terms. The people had a responsibility. God was clear with what he wanted them to do. And they did the exact opposite. But see, notice what Nehemiah was doing. Nehemiah was simply emptying himself of everything. He's making it abundantly clear that God is the Almighty, that He is to be revered, and that Nehemiah and the people were the ones who did the wrong. He was coming to God with empty hands. Nothing to bring and nothing to hold on to. I had an old friend and he's since passed and he would tell me, you know, when I come to God, I come to Him with palms up. He said, I have nothing to give. I have nothing to hold on to. Nehemiah was simply emptying himself because he had nothing to offer but everything to gain. We have nothing to offer when we come to God in prayer, but we have everything to gain. A great prayer is one that begins with praise and recognition. It is persistent and it's one that confesses our shortcomings because they are many. Verses 8 through 9 continues after the confession. And what it continues with is God's word. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the, in the most remote part of the heavens, I'll gather them there. And I will bring them to the place where I chose to cause my name to dwell. See, in verse 7, Nehemiah is speaking of things that were spoken to Moses. And of course, we want to know what are those things. Well, we find the answer in verses 8 and 9. They are a direct uh, quote from Deuteronomy 30. See, God had said, look, you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you. But if you come back to me, I will gather you back and I will bring you to the land of promise. See, what Nehemiah was doing is he was remembering the promises of God. He was remembering God's word. Well, how would he be able to remember it if he first didn't know it? How would he know it unless he first wasn't in God's word? See, a great prayer remembers God's word and his promises. If we're to have great prayers and we're to use God's word, then doesn't it stand to reason that we need to be in his word? If we want to recall the promises of God, don't we first have to know them? And if we want to know them, don't we first have to be in God's word on a regular basis? Of course, we must be in God's word, reading God's word, memorizing God's word, and applying God's word. 
Nehemiah is bringing his great prayer to a close. And he ends the same way he began. Pleading with God. God, I beseech thee. I'm pleading with you. But notice something that has been consistent all the way through this prayer. It won't be up on the screen, but verse 5. You, O Lord, you, O Lord, you're awesome. You keep your commandments. Verse 6, I'm praying on behalf of the sons of Israel. Verses 8 through 9, what does he do? He quotes God's words, not his own. And here in verse 11. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name. He says, look, I delight to revere your name. He wants God's name to be respected and to be feared and to be honored. It wasn't about his name. You know what is great and vital to a great prayer is selflessness. See, look at Nehemiah. Nehemiah cared about what God wanted. It's about his name and not his own. It's about God's people and not him. See, Nehemiah understood the, the, the order of things that I think far too often we mess up. Aren't we saturated with me in our culture? We are so saturated with me in our culture that we lose sight of what it means to be selfless. And we are encouraged to be selfish. But it, that's backwards. I mean, we're encouraged in today's society to say, you know what? I feel this way, and so you should encourage me in it. I feel this way, so encourage me in it because it's what makes me happy. It's what God would want for me. I mean, pick your topic. Marriage, drugs, sexual activity. And for some strange reason, we can now pick our own gender. I don't get it. These things are being force-fed to us. That God wants nothing more than for you to be happy. Isn't that what God wants? Yes, He wants you to be happy. But we can't get it backwards. This mentality is permeated even into our churches without us even knowing it or recognizing it. And if we aren't careful, we will end up worshiping us rather than worshiping the one who made us. See, what happens is we put our needs, ourselves, ahead of God, essentially saying that what God does, He does only for me. And so... I'm the most important one, and that couldn't be any more theologically incorrect. What God does, He does for His name, for His glory, and yes, for our benefits. But let's not get the cart ahead of the horse. Revelation 4.11, we were created for His pleasure, not the other way around. And so when I pray, I'm constantly battling between the flesh and... And the spirit, the flesh that says, you know, you are most important. You should, you should feel good all the time. And the spirit that knows what's most important. And by the way, it's not me. It's the creator of all things. It's the one who literally set the world into motion and sent his only son to redeem us, to save us. We needed him, not the other way around. And yes, he loves us and cares for us and provides for us. But we must fight against that me mentality in our lives that causes our prayers to be less than great. Nehemiah realized the order of things. And he made it abundantly clear in his prayer. Listen to one commentator summarize this. He says, There is more than rhetoric in this elaborate opening. It deliberately postpones the cry for help, which could otherwise be faithless and self-pitying. It mounts immediately to heaven as the Lord prayer does, where the perspective will be right, and it reflects on the character of God. Encouraging aspects of staunchness and love, but first of all, for the majesty which puts man, whether friend or foe, in his place. 
What an amazing prayer from one of God's messengers. Nehemiah has demonstrated what a great prayer consists of. It begins with praise and recognition. It is persistent. It involves confession. It's a prayer based on God's word. And it's focused on God and his will. I don't know about you, but that's how I want to pray. Again, let me make sure we all understand this. I understand not all prayer can be like that. It's not possible or practical. Some prayers are going to be short and sweet. Many are not even spoken, but I believe we can get some great principles in this account that will serve us well. And hopefully, we can seek to have better prayer lives. As this chapter comes to a close, the natural progression of events doesn't. It continues into chapter 2, at least the first part of it. See, in verse 11 of chapter 1, Nehemiah asked for success and compassion before this man. Well, who is this man? Well, we found out in chapter 2 that it is King Artaxerxes, the same one from Ezra. But don't miss this, however. Look at the statement before the introduction of the king in verse 1. And it came about in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. These chapters don't really have a great uh, track record of being uh, starting off exciting, do they? But do you remember the first part of the, in chapter 1? Where it talked about a time of year. What months was it? November, December. Now this is March and April. So some time has elapsed. Depending on where you are, it's at least four months. If you look at the end of chapter 1, when Nehemiah is praying that he will have success on this day, it's a day of his particular choosing. And then you move into chapter 2, and this day finally arrives. So what can we determine? What I believe as I looked at it is that at least four months has lapsed between the day of Nehemiah's choosing and the day of God's choosing. See, Nehemiah and God desire the same thing. It's just Nehemiah wanted it much quicker. See, when we can determine what will happen on a certain day, it gives us control. But what we realize is we are not in control. God is. And so for four months, he has been praying, God, let this be the day. Day in and day out, nothing happens. Day after day. So what Nehemiah understands is he's not in control. But isn't that where we want to be? Because when we realize when we're not in control, then we are dependent on the one who is. You know, the final thing that we need in our prayer life is patience and trust. God was teaching Nehemiah to trust him. He was teaching him patience. See, Nehemiah felt out of control, but of course, God is never out of control of his situation or yours. Essentially, God was saying to Nehemiah, not today. Day one, let this be the day. No, not today. Day two, not today. Day three, not today. And so on and so forth. For four months, over and over and over again, have you been there? Have you been there where you begged God, God, let this be the day. Let this happen. And you've been in that place on that particular day and it feels like nothing has happened. In fact, it feels like your prayers aren't getting anywhere beyond the ceiling. Where you cry out to God with all of your strength and nothing seemed to happen. Look, if Nehemiah were here today, he'd say, you know what, I certainly understand. But he would also tell you, God has not left you. You may feel out of control, but our God is never out of control. Stay faithful. Stay faithful to God because he's always faithful to you. So what does Nehemiah do? That's what he does. He faithfully serves, knowing that his heavenly king had not left him. And on this particular day, all of a sudden, the king notices. After four months, he finally notices. Why? Why today and not another day? Simple answer. Our God is sovereign. 
He still had some work to do with the king. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. God had some work to do in the king's heart. He probably had work to do in Nehemiah's heart over those four months. And if you're waiting on God for an answer, he probably has things to do in your life as well. What we know is God's still working on us, right? To make us what we ought to be and he will bring it to completion. But in his timing, I know how frustrating that is. But at the end of the day, whose timeline do you want to be on? Who do you want to be following? We need to have patience and to trust and to learn to rely on his timings because here's what we're going to find out. Check out verse 2. Our God can do great things. I'm going to paraphrase. The king says, what's up? Why are you so sad? Now, please note one thing here. Nehemiah was for the pleasure of the king. He was the cupbearer. It was not the job of the cupbearer or anyone that's working for the king to bring their own personal things into the workplace. The king could care less, and if you brought it up, your life could be at risk. So even answering this question, he's taking a risk, and that is why he says he was afraid. He's just being honest. Verse 3, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? There it is. It's out there. Now you know, king. Now you know why I'm sad. And as many commentators pointed out, he didn't even have to mention the name Jerusalem. And I wonder why. Maybe he's trying to keep politics out of it and concentrate on the personal aspect. Because for some strange reason, the king actually cares about him. They've spent a lot of time together, so maybe they've, they've had some interaction. And so the king replies, all right, what do you need? Then the king said to me, what do you request? So what did he do? He prayed to the God of heaven. Look, no time for long drawn out prayers here. This was a quick throw north and then he just spoke. He wanted to go back to rebuild the city and bring it back to life. And so the king says, all right. How long will you be gone? And when are you coming back? It's just crazy. For four months, he's waited on this. And in a matter of minutes, the conversation is out there. Nehemiah had agonized this, sought God's face, and God sought God's glory. And then all of a sudden, the answer falls in his lap. God can do great things, can he? He does great things. And by the way, he does great things in great ways. How is he going to rebuild the walls? He's going to use Nehemiah. Nehemiah, who is nothing special, who was no all-star, he wasn't the cream of the crop, but you know what he was? He was a faithful follower of God. But I want you to notice one thing. Nehemiah did not just go through the motions of throwing up a simple prayer every day for four months and then doing nothing about it. Just sitting back and basically saying, I'm just going to let go and let God know. Then the king said to me, how long will your journey be and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me. So what did I do? I gave him a definite time. And the king, and I said to the king, if it please the king, let letters be given to me for the governors. And he goes on to say, and we're going to just kind of go over this, but basically he's asking for more letters. And then the hand of God was on him. The king said, yes. See, not only had he been praying for four months, he'd been praying and planning. He had been praying and planning. What do you think would happen if I found out Four weeks ago that I'm going to preach on this day. And every day for four weeks I go, God, uh, I hope you help me out. Thanks. For every day. 
And then just before the offering was taken, I throw up another prayer and say, God help me. And then I get up and I have nothing prepared for you. What do you think is going to happen? It's going to be, well, first of all, it's going to be pretty short. I know some of you are thinking, are like, oh, so, okay, that, that could work. <laughs> Stop thinking it. It would be a train wreck. Okay? Not to say this. God can work through broken people. Okay? I can remember uh, the birth of our second child, I think. Uh, I went to the plant on saying this, so I don't really remember. I think it was uh, the birth of our second child. Uh, that morning, I was scheduled to preach. Uh, I, I couldn't preach. I called up the pastor and said, I can't preach. And so, do you think he was prepared? No. Did God work through that? Yes. But it's a general rule of thumb you want to prepare. <laughs> God can work through broken people. He does it every time someone gets up on the stage, whether it's me or Pastor Larry or somebody else. He can work through broken people. But God expects us to work out our faith and to be active in it. God gave us brains for a reason to use them. So we need to make sure we are active in prayer, that we are active in the word, that we are active in being part of the will of God, joining him where he is at work already. He will guide us. He will direct us. But you've got to get up and do something. That's exactly what Nehemiah has done. He was ready. He had answers. He gave the king all the answers. He had a plan. If you think about this, chapter 1 into chapter 2, what have we seen? Nehemiah has been introduced to a great problem. It was. It was great. It caused him great emotion. That led him to fall to his knees in, in a great prayer. To who? To our great God. Who can do what? He's able to do great things. How? In great ways. Look, our problems may be great. Your problems may be great in life. I'm not diminishing those. We all have our crosses to bear. We all have issues. Life is difficult and it is hard. But here's what we need. We need to not just go, you know what, that was a good word today. I'm going to go out. I'm going to enjoy the 85, 90, 95 degree weather. Whatever it's going to be today. We need... To commit to God. We need to commit to being prayer warriors for God. That's what we need this morning. We need people to commit to seeking the one who is greater than all of our problems. Greater than anything we could ever face at all, ever in our life. Will you commit to that? You, you think to yourself, okay, well, well, how do I commit to being a prayer warrior? Well, Nehemiah has shown us today. How do we have great prayer? Well, it begins with praise and recognition. We worship Him. We honor Him. We are in awe of our God. We persist. We don't give up. Why do we really care about it? You don't give up. We confess because, man, I don't know about you, but I have a lot of things to confess every single day. We remember God's Word. We recall it. In order to remember God's Word, what do we got to do? We got to be in God's Word. Make sure our prayers are selfless. Yes, we're going to pray for ourselves, but we need to be concerned about God's people and what He wants. And then we're patient and we're trusting God. We need great prayer warriors because our God is a great God. Wouldn't you agree? I hope, my hope for you this morning is that you won't just let it be another sermon. That you'll say, I'm going to commit every day to bring a prayer warrior for God. Will you pray with me? Our God, we come before you now in prayer. Lord, we recognize your holiness. We recognize how awesome you are. Lord, how far we fall short in our pursuit of you. Lord, we admit that we fall flat on our faces day to day. 
or your word has said to, to come boldly before your throne. And so, Father, that's what we do. Or we, pay, we, we pray for the patience that it takes, the trust that it takes, the selflessness that it takes to come before you. Lord, you've given us blueprints in your word for various things. We are thankful for this, this specific time in the text here that we see, Lord. You are a great God. And we're thankful for who you are. Lord, help us to be changed by your word today. To walk out of these doors different than when we came in. Lord, we want to be careful to give you all glory, all honor, all praise. It's your son's precious name we ask all these things. Amen.